0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moya's Jiwa. My guest on the show today is a remarkable South African lady. Vanessa Carter was involved in a road traffic accident and suffered severe injuries, including injuries to her face, which involved her having a prosthesis to her cheek. She experienced persistent infections and did her own research and discovered that she had MRSA. In this episode, she tells us, What happened next? It is my pleasure to introduce you to Vanessa Carter. Vanessa Carter, you're very welcome. Perhaps tell us a little bit about what you're working on and how you came to be working on that particular issue.
1: I had a
0: car accident in 2004. I was
1: about 25 years old and it was quite a severe accident. I had a lot of damage to my my, uh, my stomach uh, internally. And then I also damaged my face, the bone structure in the face, and lost the eye. So that that led me to around about a 10-year journey, trying to reconstruct the the damage, you know, inserting a lot of prosthetics. And during that time, I ended up getting a a very bad infection, which, you know, I'd gone in and out of hospital for a year, and eventually – they managed to do tests and it came back that I had an infection called MRSA. You know, some people pronounce it MRSA. And this was the first time that I'd ever heard of this this type of infection and, and antibiotic resistance was was actually what it was. So I, I started writing overseas because at this stage, I had nearly lost my face completely to this infection. And a doctor from the States Dr. Edward Cadison was a doctor that replied back to me. And he was actually working with the face transplant team at Brigham and Women's Hospital. So I was very fortunate that he, that he, he actually offered me a scalp consultation to, to give me some direction so that I, you know, I didn't have to do too many more surgeries. So I took his advice and I found doctors in Johannesburg, where, where I was living. And eventually I found a actually a facial surgeon that mimicked exactly what he had told me. And so I went here for the surgery, and and basically within eight months, we had repaired the damage, uh, you know, completely. You know, so straight after I finished these surgeries, uh, professionally I was working in marketing at the time. I was doing digital marketing, building websites, doing social media. And, you know, one of the things that really bothered me was that there was no information, uh, you know, really to guide me you know, to, to understand really what antibiotic resistance was. And so it, it troubled me that I started advocating about it. I got online, line social media channels everywhere. And I networked with, with doctors and with people until I became a, an advocate where I am today. The other thing I also started doing was uh, to teach medical stakeholders, doctors and, and uh, patients, how to use social media, how to use the internet because it was such an an important part of of my particular journey, you know, like I say, not having the information at hand.
0: It sounds like a nightmare scenario. And, you know, first of all, we're so very pleased that you managed to make a complete recovery and you were able to talk with me today. But I want to start a little bit further back and say, what do you think it was that was leading to this antibiotic resistance in, in, in that part of the world?
1: You know, well, there, there was a couple of things that could have caused it. Uh, you know, one in particular was that I had a, a, a sort of a multidisciplinary team um, working on my suit on my surgeries. You know, and they weren't working together. So I would go to one doctor, like for example, the maxillofacial surgeon, and he would prescribe medicine. He would prescribe an antibiotic and say, "Okay, well, rather go see the plastic surgeon." Then the plastic surgeon would prescribe the same antibiotic, and there was there wasn't really a lot of communication. In fact, there wasn't communication between them. So, so you know, and the more you take uh, medicine, as I was taking, the more you can worsen the resistance. So, the the other thing that uh, was a problem was myself as a patient not knowing really how resistance happens. I would, for example, I would skip a dose, or I would stop taking antibiotics because I you know in my mind I would think all oh, these things aren't working anymore not knowing any better that me doing that was actually making it worse and of course antibiotic resistance is something that bacteria can can pass also between animals and humans and that's what's what we call a one health issue so you yeah, know it's very difficult to
0: pinpoint exactly how I ended up with this uh, bacterial uh, resistance. And yet here you were as a patient discovering MRSA, discovering that you had antibiotic resistance, and then having to find the solution. And that's really the the, story, the heroic story here, isn't it really? Because you've actually taken agency back from a system and said, let me help sort this out. Yeah, you
1: know, because I was such an important part of where my recovery was going. You know, the doctors could only be there for a certain amount of time during my journey. You know, so this part of what I advocate about is how important it is for the patient to be part of and to be knowledgeable to, I always say it's common knowledge. It should be common knowledge, antibiotic resistance. But you find, I find when I talk about it to friends and family and other people, it's, they they don't understand it really very well. Things will come up, for example, like, you know, I take antibiotics when I get through, and then you sort of have to explain that there's a difference between a virus and a bacteria and that an antibiotic can only kill bacteria. Yeah, so so, so as I say, this is one of the biggest things, is awareness, common knowledge that, that patients really understand what antibiotics are there for.
0: But over and above that, it's really about you recognizing that there was a problem somehow but ba- these bacteria were effectively eating your face, and you were you were having to find the reason for it and you you identified the problem
1: yeah i you know I was very fortunate because at the time it was actually one of our prosthetics that was infected, but I had about four prosthetics in my face, and the one was was riddled with this bacteria all over it. So my plastic surgeon at the time actually put a lot of pressure on me to take it out because between the different doctors, had different opinions. And he said, well, look, this is where, the, this, is where this bacteria is. And, you know, this is what's going to happen. And he, he removed it. And it was, it was actually during surgery that, that he didn't have to. It was a facial surgeon that was operating on me. And he came in and he said, look, it's, you know, it's coming out. So and that, that that was kind of what made alarm bells go off for me because I thought he's taken this this uh, risk, you know, to, to remove this this prosthetic. There's got to be a problem. And that was when he sent it off for testing. And when I phoned and I asked, him, what was on this prosthetic? What type of infection was it? Why weren't the antibiotics working? And and that was when I learned about MRSA. And uh, so, so, yeah, I, I gave the credit to the plastic surgeon because at that point in time, I didn't understand it at all until I started reading up about it and, you know, making it my to really understand what was
0: the way forward, you know, from, from there. Vanessa, I cannot think of a more compelling story that would lead somebody to the kind of work that you're now doing. So tell us a little bit about that. Where did you take this journey after this particular event? Once I got online
1: and I started networking, one of the first things that I did was I went um, onto Facebook and I created a a page there, and I started writing again to to people, to doctors, and asking them if I could share their posts there, whatever they were sharing, could I share it on their page? And from there, I connected with a a medical librarian uh, working at the Michigan University, and she said, you've got a great page, I'm going to follow you. Have you tried Twitter? And that was really the the main spot of my journey was getting onto Twitter where I had just hundreds of people suddenly following me. And then I got an invitation to participate in a Twitter chat. And this particular Twitter chat went on at 2 o'clock in the morning for me in South Africa on a Tuesday. It was healthcare leader, HCLGAR is the hashtag. And I got up every week religiously for a year to get into this Twitter chat. And to network with people because they were talking about the same thing I was talking about and, you know, brainstorming. I just, because of, obviously with my marketing background, I just fell in love with this idea of, of being able to connect like this. And from there, I got an invitation to speak in Paris. And I got on the plane and I went because I knew this was this, this was where I needed to be, you know, where I needed to share my story. And from there, there was Doctors 2.0 and you in Paris. And from there, it basically grew. And in 2017, I was awarded a scholarship at Stanford University Medicine, Medics, an e-patient scholarship. E-patients are, it basically goes back to what I was talking about with the lack of information on the internet, using these resources to empower and educate patients so that they can become more, they can participate better. In the
0: journey, in the So here you are from South Africa, now got yourself a scholarship to Stanford to become an e patient to educate people on these antibiotic, presumably it was based on antibiotic resistance, was it? Yes, yes, it was. You've done a lot more since then?
1: Uh, yes, so the training side is what I've done. I mean, I've been doing this for about age, uh, seven years now. And it uh, has led me to to doing training in sharing the knowledge that I have got from Stanford and as I say as well, you know getting doctors really involved with these tools, getting them online because they need to share their knowledge with with patients so that they can become empowered
0: okay, so you're connecting doctors with patients on their online platforms more teaching them the benefits of being visible
1: online, being an influencer in, in, in essences, getting, getting online and sharing information. So, for example, if a doctor has a website, maybe he can put on his website somewhere information about antibiotic resistance, and when a patient comes to see him, uh, he can direct them there rather than the patient leaves and goes to Google and is left at their own devices.
0: Yeah. And how widely has this spread in terms of, the reach with doctors. How many doctors have you got involved in this?
1: I've moderated a Twitter chat where I've had actually I established a Twitter chat in 20 around about 2015, my own uh, chat, but which was on the hashtag HCSMSA, which is the name I trainer do, which is Healthcare Communications and Social Media South Africa. So uh, with, with the Twitter chat, gosh, it's very difficult to put a number on because you know, that can go quite viral, probably a few, more than a few hundred, because I mean, I've presented at a lot of conferences as well, where, for example, the International Infection and Prevention Control conference in Geneva last year was 1,200 doctors, microbiologists, and all different disciplines. And then I've talked at some of the universities as well. Like I've, I've just done a workshop at the Witz University, which is in Johannesburg, And that was to public health researchers to teach them how to use tools, for example, Simpler, where they can go in and they can actually see conversations between patients and doctors and different communities, you know, so that they can improve their research using social media as well. And also understand things, for example, like fake news, your misinformation, what we call an epidemic, that's also one of the crucial parts that they that they are on there because really what we need to do is debunk a
0: lot of the the uh, fake news that's out there, causing a lot of damage to patients. It sounds like it's making a huge difference, Vanessa. And you think our journal is about small change, big difference? Well, you're making an enormous difference to a lot of people, particularly focusing on this particular issue. Antibiotic resistance is a huge problem, not just in your part of the world, but worldwide, as we all know. And MRSA in particular, there's no person with any prosthesis anywhere in the world who is not terrified of getting MRSA and having having their prosthesis then being removed and being on antibiotics, which themselves are toxic, as we know. So from that, you've done some other work as well, which uh, I became aware of, which was really around the use of social media in health promotion generally. Do you want to say something about that?
1: As I was saying, going back to the whole issue of do, do the public understand what antibiotic resistance is? The, the, the world or, or the focus now on antibiotic resistance is really also from a One Health approach. And so things like how can consumers put more pressure on the food production industry? If they're informed about antibiotic resistance and that uh, it can be passed on between our food and um, ourselves, you know that 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 could potentially make a big difference. And again, using tools like social media to empower people to make better decisions about meats that they eat and, and so on. And in terms of health promotion, looking after yourself to try and avoid taking antibiotics in the first place because. They are miracle drugs and, you know, you just you don't want to take them every time you get sick unless you absolutely
0: need them. And we're seeing a lot of that now in the sense that people with viral illness turning up to doctors' clinics, almost demanding antibiotics, perhaps this might change that mindset because you're right, they are very, very useful drugs in the right circumstances, mm-hmm. but an antibiotic does not treat viral illness.
1: Yes. It always worries me when I hear, you know, as I was saying, when somebody says I, I take this antibiotic and it's it always cures my food. It's that, that's very concerning because another thing that people don't understand is when they take that antibiotic, it's not it's not just a case of them increasing the risk of getting resistance. You can pass on resistance to somebody else. If you get resistance, it affects me. It affects somebody else as well. So yes, that's it's a uh,
0: it's a global thing. It's not a. It's it's not a personal thing. You can pass on resistance. When somebody does come with an infection, often they're not talking about curing the infection. It's something else that's bothering them. The infection is just one more thing that they have to handle. It could be something, uh, some unhappiness at work, or it could be some problem, personal relationship relationship problem. It could be something, and then of course you catch a cold, and then the cold becomes. The focus of, well, I can try and fix this, I can't fix those other things. And the pressure is then on to go and get something that will fix the cold. And of course, by the time you've had the antibiotic for the cold, it's been three or four days since the start of the infection. And lo and behold, a couple of days later, it gets better, which is the life cycle of a viral illness five to seven days. Yes, yeah,
1: that's, I hear what you're saying. So, in other words, they take the antibiotic thinking that it's made them, it's made it better, it's cured them. But you know, as you say, it's a it's a cycle, it would have gone away on its own anyway. I think with all the COVID, I mean this is COVID nineteen is it is a major problem as well because if people believe that antibiotics are going to cure that, then obviously your your prescriptions are going to go up as well.
0: Yes, absolutely. And of course the the one thing you want is to be rid of whatever it is as soon as possible. You're going to have to be COVID tested, you're going to have to be isolated and Potentially not able to work. And we now know that particularly in this part of the world, people who are isolated and who don't have the supports, the financial supports to sustain themselves at that time are suffering as a consequence. How is it in South Africa at the moment? We, we don't hear an awful lot, I have to say, in the, in the press about the South African situation. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening there at the moment? Yeah,
1: you know, as I say our numbers are very high, our infection rates very high. We we are round about four hundred and fifty thousand currently and we, we're in the top five in the world at the moment. So our rules, our lockdown rules are very strict. You know, we've got complete alcohol bans, complete cigarette bans. Our schools, public schools did open but they've now, you know, shut down again mm. for another month. And People are really battling. As as I say, economic situation is not is not very good at the moment. So you know, we can only just pray and hope that we can get get past it as soon as possible. You know, but
0: I, 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 from the looks of things, I think COVID is, is is here to stay. So it does seem that way for sure. And of course, the answer, and we're we're battling this in, in Melbourne, Australia, because we've had a second uptick and of course we've had to therefore have a much tighter lockdown. Now we don't have a complete ban on alcohol and cigarettes. We do have mandatory masks, we do have social distancing rules and those are being policed quite closely. And yet we have some people in, in the streets still not following those those rules, regardless of what the consequences might be. How is it how is that playing out in a country like South Africa? Is the population very obedient of those particular directives, or do you see some evidence of rebellion?
1: We have had uh, because we had, for example, the alcohol ban was was first put into place when we were on level five, and when we got to level three, it was lifted Mm -hmm. for a month, and then because of rebellion, they had to put it in place again, and they did have the the uh, defence force out to. You know, enforce the, the rules, but you know it's also understandable because we've got a lot of the the townships. It's very very difficult for people to stay inside. Um, you know those that sort of housing, and they're very close together as well. You know, so if, if you were fortunate enough to have a house that you know that you you comfortable, then it's a different story. But um, yeah, I, I think I think overall. Uh, our president has been very good with was, was, was managing the lockdown. It's, I wouldn't
0: say it's, easy. it's been an easy period for, for everyone, but yeah. And what role does social media have in this context? Do you think that social media is helping the situation or making it worse?
1: I think the fact that people know what COVID is and very quickly. Yes, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation, um, videos that, that went viral. You know, at one stage, they were being just trying to think of the name of the movie. Uh, pandemic was was one. They, they, they did cause a lot of issues, but but overall, people had started understanding things like infection prevention control overnight because of social media. Because we could get that information out very 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 quickly to them. I, I think in future, a lot has been learned. Changes that have been made to Facebook changes that have been made to Instagram, for example, banning of hashtags or putting in a redirect at the top of the page to say this is where you're going to find factual information. I think that that's, that's been a good thing that's come out of COVID is people being more aware of fake, fake news online. I mean, if, if, if there was such a massive campaign for antibiotic resistance like there has been for COVID, I
0: think it would make a major difference. To, to the situation as well. At the moment, where is it in terms of the the, the numbers? Are the numbers falling? Are they still going up? What's happening?
1: It's still climbing. So that I actually don't know. I haven't looked to tell you if the uh, if the daily rate
0: has come down. If it's still the same. I think you, squ- you quoted a horrible number earlier on. Uh, was it yes for the total number so far? Yeah, it's very
1: high. Our, our death rate is, is about one point five percent. The last time I looked, which is which is a good thing. It's difficult for me to say why. You know, if we compare ourselves to, Black Mexico and the UK, they have very high uh, death rates. So yeah. I don't know if that's if that's
0: connected to um, the the way that we're doing testing or, or a
1: younger population. Uh, could be
0: because we have a younger generation. Vanessa Carter, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. You've had so much to offer after what was clearly a, a tragic incident earlier in your life. We wish you all the very best, and I very much hope we'll have another conversation in the very near future. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to be here with you today. The Journal of Health Design Better Health by Design. Visit us at the Journal of Health Design dot com